Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Alexia Russell and Andy McCombs with us this afternoon. Nice to have your company. Hope you had uh, a good uh, long weekend off. And on that, what did you do with your extra day off? Maybe you went out for a coffee or down to the local pub. Well, New Zealand has 12 public holidays, some workers miss out on more than half of those paid days off each year. The Holidays Act means that people who work Monday to Friday are protected. But if you work weekends or if you usually have Mondays off, you can miss out. This was reported in the spin-off, and it's an issue the Unite Union is trying to get fixed by lobbying for a law change and one that impacts people and jobs outside of your nine-to-five. It's run-of-the-mill to work weekends and have Mondays off in hospitality. And we've just had an email through from Tim, he's furious. It has always made me furious that I miss out on so many public holidays just because I work Tuesday to Saturday. I wrote to my local MP in Mount Albert, They weren't interested. No one seems to be interested in fixing this anomaly in the law. The solution, simple. An alternative day's leave if a public holiday falls on a day, which is a usual day off. So listeners are heated. With us is David Williamson, Senior Hospitality and Tourism Lecturer at AUT. Uh, David, kia ora. Nice to have you on. Wallace, it's always a pleasure to be talking with you yes, again. Yeah, well, I hope you had a nice long weekend. Um, they, I tell you what, I certainly did, but I was, I was actually surprised uh, at the anomalies around us. Many, and many listen to this, would not have that right. That's right. And, I mean, we've just finished doing a very big survey again of hospitality and tourism workers with Unite Union. We're up to about 1,700 responses on that one. And, you know, that joins the other two surveys we've done in 2022 and 2021. And what we're seeing is a pattern across hospitality and tourism workers where those basic rights that we would all expect to be able to have a day off on a public holiday or if you're working that public holiday day, to be getting your day in lieu and time and a half pay is actually just not happening for a very significant minority of workers. You know, between 10 and 20% of the workers we're seeing in this latest survey are not getting their basic legislative minimum under the law. And you know, not only are they being expected to work public holidays, but even when they do do that, they're not getting that day in lieu and time and a half in return for doing so. So it's sort of unfair on a couple of different levels. Uh, That's quite a big chunk of the population, isn't it? That's not entitled. So let me get this straight. So if you work Monday to Friday, you're guaranteed all public holidays because even if the holiday falls on the weekend uh, when you usually wouldn't work, your holiday is Monday eyes. You know, it gets shifted to Monday. Exactly. Yeah. But you're a little less lucky if you do not, if you don't work weekdays. So if you don't work Mondays, you're like to miss out on more than five public holiday entitlements. So that would include, many, for example, many cafes around the country uh, who might be closed on a Monday. Exactly, and right. it's not just it's not just you know permanent part time as you might have that regular Monday. It's also you think of all your casual workers, all your people who are doing quite variable shifts, and it's not just hospitality and tourism; it's retail as well. By the time you add up all those kind of workers who are on more casual contracts where it's not so clear cut, you're getting you know, a large proportion of the workforce which may not be getting those public holidays, which is so important for mental health, for physical 
mental health for people to be have a you know a balanced lifestyle. And so yeah, I'm, I'm right behind Unite when they're fighting to try and get this fixed. Well, let's go on the panel, uh, Alexia. What, what do you make of this? I mean, I uh, did you did you have a long weekend? Were you entitled to it? I had a long weekend because I'm not allowed to work on public holidays, but I don't get paid for those public holidays. Ah. So add to your list, David, everyone who is on contract. Yes. So I don't get paid for any public holiday. So I miss out on all 12, and that goes to my crew mm-hmm. as well. It's just the way that the thing is structured because it's publicly funded, so it just goes for a year. Um, so, you know, you don't work, we don't get sick leave, we don't get holiday pay, we don't get anything. When you work, you get paid. That's it contract workers. You can also add to that list people who are self-employed like tradies. I mean they're not, they're not, they can't pay themselves for a public holiday can they? They often can't work on that day because no one's around. But they also don't get paid and, and I think the self-employed often get quite forgotten in, at times like this as well. So I would say that your estimate of 10% plus is, is on the very small size. Mm, those are great points, you know. Um, and you see, when you look at the uh, mental and physical well-being of people who are self-employed, those sort of tradies, you know, it really suffers because they work and work and work and work and don't get those holidays off. So those are excellent points. All right, someone says, far too much of our employment law is structured around a Monday to Friday work week. It's quite last century. It is the most vulnerable workers who miss out uh, and management does get the cream is this person's uh, point of view. Andy, let's bring you in. Yeah, I enjoyed yesterday off, which was lovely for the first time in, in quite a while. Um, I've worked in, in retail previously and um, you just sort of expected to put up with the um, yeah, the, the riffraff that come in when their entitlement um, wanting their small appliances at 7am on Boxing Day while you're still a bit hungover but um, my question to David is um, how can we advocate for change for workers' rights um, fair pay agreements seem like a step in the right direction but where to next from here? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> yes, um, I, I'm worried that, of course, the fair pay agreements will be reversed by the National Act government coming in. Um, you know, this is where I'm a huge supporter of unions. I've been a union member my whole life, and I think one of the best ways that you can fight for these sorts of improved conditions and against these types of problems is to join a union, be a participant in that, and use that to drive your conditions. And and, of course, through unions, you can influence political uh, sort of uh, directions as well. But, yeah, I'm, I'm one of for direct power at the workplace through unions is the best way. Do we have to be careful, though, because advocate for, cha- advocate for too much change, David, and you possibly put um, thousands and thousands of small businesses like your cafes at risk uh, who, and in hospitality, as you will well know, uh, already doing it tough at the margin. You know my opinion on this was. <laughs> We've had this before. My opinion remains, if you are running a business that cannot afford to pay a realistic salary or a realistic hourly rate and you can't pay the basic conditions that are in place under employment law, then you oh, should not be in business. That's your just business too tough. Model is, Surely not. not. Your business model is faulty if you're not generating enough profit from your business to actually pay what we would all expect to be decent... 
employment conditions, then you should not be in business. What do you think about this? Is this just mean? Is that mean of David saying that? You should <laughs> not. You should not. No, no. When you decide to employ someone, as uh, you know, my husband has employed an apprentice. You work out financially before you start whether you can afford to pay that person, including four weeks holiday pay, their sick leave, their public holidays. That's part of your calculation. And if you can't afford to do that or it's marginal, you hold off employing that person. Um, now, there's a difference when there is a plummet in the, you know, if there's a recession or the cost of living gets huge or their wages escalate because of the, you know, competition. That becomes tight, but it's the same sort of tight that people are finding paying their mortgages now. It's a mm. fact of life and you have to do some belt tightening to compensate for that. You know, it, it, it must be part of your business plan that includes that that on certain days your employee will be getting paid but will not but be I earning hear you any money. But you've got the overall economy which fluctuates, you know, it's the... the, the yeah, but the, everyone's caught up in that, Wallace. I mean, anyone who's got a mortgage has been caught up in that. It's just life. <laughs> And I've never understood why we privilege the tens of thousands of small business owners against the hundreds of thousands of employees working in it. Why do they have more rights to be looked after than the workers that they're employing? Because, why do they've, we want to start, come? because they've started something. They've started a productive business. They're productive members of, uh, of our society. Unlike their employees, Wallace. Is that what you're saying? Are their employees not productive members of society? I'm not saying a thing. I'm just asking a question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I think, yeah. yeah. So just in, <laughs> just in the fairness of it, because many, as I said at the start, many might be surprised. What do you do if you, because it, it comes back to that mental health thing, doesn't it, Dave? You know, um, a lot of nine-to-fivers will be quite surprised to hear that you know, you will not get the full entitlement of up to 12 holidays. In mm. fact, you get nowhere near it. Mm. Yep, I think, again, it's a, it's a matter of you taking responsibility for your own work conditions and your own mental and physical health, checking your, checking your contract. If it's not what you want, if you're not getting what you should be, then mm. I would go to your union, join them, start to fight for it right in the workplace. Uh, David, uh, nice to have you on the programme. Kia ora. Always That's, a pleasure, yeah. Wallace. No, absolutely. David Williamson there, Senior Hospitality and Tourism Lecture at AUT. What a great point your guest has made. If your business model can't afford to pay its staff a decent living wage, plus other costs, then why is it in business? It's better that business closes down and those staff can go on staff, more profitable businesses, go on to other profitable businesses. That just seems so mean-spirited, Andy. No, not at all. And if we want people to stay in New Zealand and not go to Australia where they get paid penalty rates for working weekends, then we need to really up our game and support our workers. Totally agree right. with David. 19 past four, the panel. Uh, needless to say, very big response to that. Uh, nice to have your feedback this afternoon. Now, it's been a bone of contention in the super city. Ferry services, the reliability of them coming under scrutiny and the fact that it's a monopoly. No more, it seems, a new ferry service is coming to Waiheke Island. New Island Direct Waiheke Island ferry service has sparked price war in the Hauraki Gulf route. Island Direct is offering pre-book return trips to Waiheke for $50, nearly half the $95 price being offered by Fuller's for its new service. With us is Waiheke Local Board Chairwoman Kathy Handley. Welcome, Kathy. Kia ora, and it's Kath, thanks. Oh, my apologies, Kath. No problem. My apologies, <laughs> yeah. Look, this must have come 
as music to the ears of local islanders, Kath? Oh, what a relief. You know, so many... We've, we've had competition before and deeply regret that when it's been sort of forced out of business or gone out of business. So now we have a competitor on our route between Wakey Island Passenger Service through to downtown. How do Waiheke Islanders feel about their ferry service of the last couple of years? Uh, deeply disillusioned, disappointed, um, and I could use far more uh, colourful adjectives. Um, <laughs> recently, the Auckland Transport consulted across the whole region for a draft regional public transport plan, and per head of population, Waiheke people outnumbered other local board areas um, by a massive margin. And the biggest single issue that they wanted mm. sorted was the series on cost, on um, our services, the timetable, um, on reliability. So those are three really big issues for us. It's not speaking out eternally, because you're in Auckland here, to say that uh, the, the the access to, to Waiheke and other routes has been a bit of a shamozzle in the last year or two. It's, it's been quite yes, shamozzle. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, oh, no, Alexia first, and let's go to you, Kath, after that. Apologies. Yeah. No, yeah. no. no, I was just going to say that it's not just Waiheke, although Waiheke is by yeah. far the worst. It's, you know, Hobsonville constantly disrupted, Northcote on the verge of getting canned completely, Birkenhead also, um, you know, the ones further up. Upper Harbour, it's not just the weather, it's it's mechanical things, it's lack of staff, it's all sorts of things that disrupt them and they seem to seem to disproportionately hit the ferries. But, you know, you go to other countries where they're made up of a bunch of islands and, you know, it seems to work fine. And my question is, why has the government subsidy not clipped in for Waiheke by now? Because this is crazy. Kath? Uh, yeah, entirely agree about the government subsidy. That's a, that is a different issue. These um, issues came about during COVID, and then the recovery was too slow um, by our measures against everything else. And I think when we're looking across Auckland, yes, the problems are also are region wide. The difference is that no other ferry service is relying. Sorry. Or no other area relies on the ferry service entirely. So they'll have buses, they'll have private cars, they've got mum that could come and pick them up and drop them at a train station. We have none of those options. So when our ferry doesn't doesn't run or is unaffordable, it has tremendous uh, consequences for our community and our economy. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, I've never been to Waiheke, but... Um, You're missing out. <laughs> Well, mate, now I can visit, so that's great. Um, more, yeah, more competition's always great. Um, is there any concern about too many tourists or an influx of people flooding back in over to the island, or is this the extra ferry just going to help pick up the slack, really? I think this service is going to pick up the slack. Um, there is always a concern about the number of tourists, um, but I don't think at this price that this is going to be the thing that tips that you know, even further into tourism causing tremendous downsides uh, to the environment and economically to the island. So, you know, I, don't, I think this is only a benefit, particularly to tour operators.
Because this means they can guarantee they can book their people on a tour and know they're going to a turn up and b turn up in a restaurant where they've already booked for yeah, their tour party to go to lunch. So it's a huge impact. I'm very happy for you because yeah, I'm very because it's that reliability and not being able to sort of have that reliability. I'm so happy for you, Kath. I'm hoping that it will last. How confident are you that this, I guess, duopoly, if you want to call it, uh, will last? Well, this is a small business. They're starting with yeah. one ferry, but they're starting with one ferry with intentions to grow, and they've got very good business credentials between the two families, the two operators of the new service. So one hopes that they will be well supported by passengers and also by the authorities, and by that I mean uh, Auckland Transport, um, because previously some services have been disadvantaged by where they have to berth, whether or not they've got cover, whether or not they can sell tickets on the wharves, those sorts of things. So, you know, we'll be working with Auckland Transport and encouraging them to do everything they can, not just to support this small service, but to support more competition per se, because that is what's needed. If something's not regulated, then one thing is to regulate and one is to provide competition for fair pricing. And that's the problem, Kath, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people think when they think Waiheke, they think beautiful vineyards and expensive helicopter tours and things like that. But you forget that there's a substantial population of people who just live there and they need to get to the hospital and they need mm. to get to the, you know, their relatives on the other side and they just need to live their lives. And it doesn't only revolve around staying on the island. It's a, you know, the, these are part of our, these people are part of our city and they need to be able to um, participate in the life of the city. Absolutely, and we've got up to 1,500 people out of 9,500 to 10,000 who commute to work. So they've got to be able to get to work uh, and back again uh, to bring their income to the island and our household incomes, actually, because I think our island suffers from being you know, characterised as a play, playground for the rich and famous. In actual fact, mm. our, our average household income is $25,000 less than the average household income of Auckland as a whole. I didn't know that. way down. That surprises me. That surprised me. I'll have to fact check that. No, but I I can guarantee the fact. It's been like that for a number of years. That's the household, average household, uh, sorry, median household income. Do you think they could spend a vast amount of money on improving the uh, State Highway 1 to Wellsford and Walkworth? Uh, and yeah. as a consequence, a lot of people now live up there and commute to their jobs because they can do it by road. Yeah. What's the difference with Waiheke? Good on him. Kath, nice to have you on the programme, and, uh, yeah, well done, all the best. Uh, so that's, good of you. Thank you, Wallace. It's a pleasure for Kath Handley there, a Waiheke local board chairwoman there. Um, and, yep, yeah, look, big response to our story about uh, not getting the holidays that you are owed. Uh, our, our top story there, um, bollocks, Wallace. Capital and labour are the two fundamentals of a business, but no business ever got off the starting blocks with capital only. But many did with no capital and only labour, starting with one man on his own, like the Ford Motor Company. One man and no money. Capital needs labour to succeed, says one. Uh, And use your brain, Wallace. I've been self-employed builder all my life. It's a business. No holiday pay, no sick pay. Your unconscious bias is showing. Funny how businesses want society to fund them while they continue to moan and groan. If they can't compete in the free market, then obviously you are not competitive. So spirited responses uh, on the panel, Andy, this afternoon. 
Yeah, pro worker. Who would have thought? thought. Uh, now, uh, 27 past for the panel, uh, NZ National. Well, the world's oldest dog has died, aged 31 in Portugal. The secret? A long life with good food, fresh air and lots of love. So I thought, let us have a panel guest book today of the pets that have passed us by and have been a big part of your life. Whether it's your beloved Bijon Freeze, that cheeky little chihuahua who you gave a bath to every Wednesday afternoon. Uh, here's one. I'm, I'm remembering my first beautiful Egyptian male cat named Alrond, who was the first one of his breed born in here in New Zealand. His birthday and his anniversary both fall on this day, 24th of October. He crossed the Rainbow Bridge six years ago at the grand age of 15, but I still miss him every day. With us is Steve. Welcome to the program, Steve. Hi, how are you? Oh, lovely. Um, we're doing, uh, I guess, an, an honouring of the pets that have passed us by, a scrapbook of sorts. What's yours? We had um, Bear, who was a Rottweiler Corgi cross. Um, oh. He passed away in June, and he was a beautiful dog. But, um, yeah, a bit of a strange strange combination, as you can imagine. I can, I can really imagine. I'm closing my eyes and thinking about this <laughs> uh, this uh, Rottweiler Corgi cross. Um, what, what was special about him? And what was his name, by the way, um, Bear? He was bare. Um, he was just a lovely... He had a corgi smile. He had a corgi body shape. He looked like a Rottweiler. He was a black and tan. Um, short legs, big feet, um, and just a gorgeous nature. And he just... He, he made friends wherever he went. And if, if, he, if you didn't want to be his friend, he didn't really care. And he, <laughs> we'd take him for walks and he'd go bowling into houses oh. and say hello. Well, I'm just... Uh, this is a first, Andy. I've never heard of a corgi Rottweiler cross... <laughs> Um, but it does um, acknowledge the fact that pets are close to us, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I'd love to see a picture of Bear. If you, if you could email one into Wallace oh, or something, please. that would be great. Yeah, we... Um, oh. Pets' relationships are so spe- special. Like, when I saw the article, um, it made me think of a, a cat that we had, Tinkerbell, who lived to her 20s. Oh. Um, she passed away just a, a couple of weeks after our dog, so I feel like there's a real connection between them. They was um cuddled together quite a bit so yeah it's quite special <laughs> do you do you miss do you still miss bear oh it's very, yeah it's very raw still a bit raw we haven't um got got to the replacement stage yet but you can't um we can't find another rottweiler corgi strangely so <laughs> no we'll, i can imagine we're have to find out find what we have but we're most commonly asked who was the mother so the rottweiler was the mother Oh, do, do, Alexia, do you want a word here? Clearly not a pet fan. Clearly you're, you're crossing your arms tightly, you're kicking back, and you're rolling your eyes. I have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm not really a, I'm not a dog fan. I mean, we had a couple of cats that lived to 18 and 20. They died. We've got two more. <laughs> Are you still thinking about the Waiheke Island Ferry or something? <laughs> <laughs> Think about not being paid for yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> We'll try and sort that out for you, eh? Uh, good luck. <laughs> we'll see. Hey, um, Steve, kia ora. Thanks for your memories. Thank you very much. Thanks there you go. Um, uh, Nairi says, we had a black bunny named Bombardier, huge friendly, grunted when you patted him. Bombardier kept getting snuffles 
a virus rabbit, a virus that rabbits get, and he went missing. So we thought he had died from snuffles. A year later, a neighbour told us he had caught a big black rabbit and eaten it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not very nice. See, dogs dogs ate our rabbits when we were kids, so maybe that's why I'm not a big dog fan. All right. Well, it could have been the huskies that tore our yeah. chickens apart a few oh, years ago. Oh, okay. So that, was, that was delightful, too. All right. There's, there's, yeah. there's history behind your uh, ambivalence. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, I'm, an, uh, I'm an animal lover, but passed over the rainbow bridge? Really? How about just died? 